0: From Kurtco Media.
1: There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Scott Talal with the Malibu Film Society, and today we're actually going to be talking about television. Joining us is the multi award winning producer Kara Vallo, who currently runs three of Fox Television's four Sunday night animation domination shows. Family Guy, American Dad, and The Cleveland Show. She's also the producer of the next season of Cosmos, Possible Worlds. Welcome, Thank you for having welcome. having me. I want to start with Cosmos because this is something that you're getting ready to launch mm-hmm. the next iteration. It's going to be mm-hmm. called Cosmos, Possible, Possible Worlds. World. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about uh, that.
0: Well... Cosmos was originally just supposed to be a one off. It was supposed to be a one season, like special mini series. Just it's a... remaking
1: the original. Mm-hmm. Carl and it was Sagan.
0: a yeah, a project that Seth MacFarlane really wanted to do and he contacted Androyan, who's Carl Sagan's widow who owns the property, and convinced Fox to do this series. It ended up being a lot more successful than anyone had anticipated it was gonna be. So they decided they wanted to do a second season, which we had sort of never thought was going to happen. And I actually finished it last year, the middle of last year, and I finally have an air date for it that I don't actually have at the top of my head, but sometime this spring. going
1: should it's gonna have be in it, March.
0: March, okay. Yeah. So we're yeah we're excited. That's finally going to be seen.
1: Well, the title certainly suggests a lot of interesting Mm -hmm. stuff, and you get to visualize that.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, did you watch the first season of Cosmos? And did you watch the original Mm -hmm. Carl Sagan series? Yes, I Um, am
1: that old. Yeah,
0: no, I am too. I was forced to watch that as a child with my parents. It was you know vent television in our house. So when I was approached about contributing animation to the remake of Cosmos, I was extremely hesitant about doing it. In fact, my initial reaction was that I was very busy and I, I had just come off developing a show that didn't end up going and I was exhausted. This is before I had spoken to anyone about what they were planning on doing with it. But it held such a reverent place in my memory that I felt I couldn't do it justice, and I hadn't really spoken to anyone. I only spoken to Seth, and he sort of talked about it. And he was like, well, we want to—you know how they had, in the Carl Sagan version, they had live actors portraying historical figures, and it looked a little bit wonky, you know, like current day, where people are—their expectations are huge— period productions like Downton Abbey, and they didn't have that kind of budget, so they were going to use animation instead. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it justice. And it seemed sort of daunting to me.
1: Just because of the difference in animation style? Or
0: well, I hadn't even gotten that far in the process. It was the idea of animating Cosmos to replace a huge element of the original show. So my first reaction was, I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I was driving home from work, and one of the producers on the show called me and said, oh, so we want you to come meet Anne and the Cosmos people. Thanks for coming on board. And I was like, you know, I don't know. There must have been some mistake. I'm too busy, and I can't. And he said, well, no, Seth said that you could do it and that this other project was done. And so I went and met with Anne, and we talked for a couple hours. And it was one of those situations where she sort of charmed me into doing it, and I understood what she was imagining, and it wasn't just sort of replacing this live-action narrative element with animation. She wanted something different, and we talked about, like, what Cosmos meant to us. And, you know, then it was like, well, actually, animation is probably the only thing you could use to achieve what she what wanted to achieve with it. So it was difficult difficult show to work on. It was hard to just come up with an idea, a stylistic idea of some approach to it because I wasn't really given any specific direction because it was something that was completely new and it was different from producing a property like Family Guy, you know. said they wanted something that looked sophisticated, didn't look like corny or like children's animation, but they didn't really know what that was. So there was a long period of development of trying to come up with... First, a way to produce it, and there wasn't a lot of money for this production, and it was a huge undertaking. There were a lot of different moving parts, visual effects and live action, and then there was my part, which was somehow conveying the narrative story in each script, as well as the parts of the script that had to describe sometimes complicated scientific theories and experiments and such but in a visual way that audience could understand them. So I felt a huge amount of responsibility, not just for it to look great and not look hokey, but to make everything understandable for viewers and to parse down sometimes very complicated, sort of convoluted ideas into little pieces that could visually explain something that people would be able to understand.
1: Was well, given important. the challenges that you had the first time around, are you still daunted by what's coming up this time? Or?
0: Yeah, I mean... Going into the second season, definitely we had established the style, which was a huge part of launching the first season. So we had that, how we created the backgrounds and how we created the animation had already been established. But unlike Episodic Television show, like Family Guy, each script for Cosmos involved a different time period, different characters. So... It's a lot more work that goes into having to do that. Between like 10 minutes and 30 minutes of animation per episode, it varied with each one. And you couldn't reuse any elements from the previous episode. Everything had to be drawn new. And there were a lot of things we... (laughs) learned from the first season that we didn't repeat in the second season, which made it a lot easier. But the scripts are really brilliant and they are complicated and they were dense. A large part of it is sort of parsing through all this information and trying to make it clear storytelling and compelling and taking everything that works in the script and making it visual and making it interesting to people. But still making it really clear.
1: I can't imagine anything that would be so diametrically opposed to what you have mm-hmm. historically been doing with the animation domination nights on Fox.
0: Yeah, it is. And I think that's why I ended up really enjoying it, because, you know, it's a blessing, hashtag, that Family Guy and American Dad have been on the air for so long. But, you know, it becomes a bit of a grind 18 seasons in. And you know what I love about animation is that you can do anything with it, but... The rules of, like, exploiting a medium are pretty narrow in a network episodic show. Like, on Family Guy, we do a lot when we can with, I don't know how familiar are the show, but occasionally we'll do things that sort of go outside the traditional guide of what that show is and do something with, like, stop motion or different elements of style. But it's basically what it is. Or
1: a whole musical show.
0: Or a whole musical show, yeah. But... Cosmos was something completely different. It's, it's a science show. And even though three quarters of what my job was is to provide the narrative storytelling part, another part of it was to animate the these sort of what we called like mini-docs, these explanatory half-minute vignettes of experiments and scientific things. So I worked with a small team, and they had to be people that were really interested in doing a shit ton of research. And they're people that worked in animation, like directors and designers, but also who... Were really smart and wanted to do a lot of research because that was a huge part of it because it had to be exact. When you were animating a television episode like American Dad, we work from a script and a radio play of the voices and the artists take that and really work specifically from exactly what they're given, more or less. But with Cosmos, it was a lot more inventing and a lot more thinking had to go into it and a lot of figuring out and it's not easy. It's a difficult show.
1: It's not exactly like you're a stranger to things that are not easy. I mean, Fox came to you and Seth, and the next thing you know, you're building a brand new independent within Fox studio Mm -hmm. with over 200 employees. I mean, that's insane.
0: Yeah, it was interesting how it came about. I had produced the third season of Family Guy, and it was a 13-episode season, and then it was canceled. And Seth and I went on to do other things. We did some things together. And during the time of the cancellation, Fox had decided to put out the episodes on DVD. And Seth and I kind of knew just from like the zeitgeist that there were fans of the show. And when the DVDs came out, They would have these like little DVD events at bars and stuff around colleges. And I'd go to a lot of them with Seth and like lines around the block of these young guys wanting to just get the DVDs and see Seth do voices. So it was a little odd because she had been off the air for a couple of years and it sold a lot. So that was one of the reasons they investigated bringing it back. Not the only reason. But Seth was developing another show, unaware that Family Guy was ever going to return. And that was American Dad. And so I was producing a presentation for that show over at Fox to try to sell it. They had like a couple presentations that they were going to choose from. And they made the decision to renew Family Guy and then also pick up American Dad, which was a little surprising. And, of course, they are like, we need to get up and running, like, right away. The normal order for a show is 22 episodes. And that's, like, a big order. They don't do those anymore. But that was the typical order for animated show then. But they decided they wanted to do 35 episodes for the first season. And I just thought that was fantastic. And it ended up not really being fantastic, being sort of not a great idea in retrospect. But um, As in no sleep? You no, know, it's not that it was too much. And they also wanted us to do this Family Guy movie which so I'd sort of forgotten about in that same time period. And it was just, I think, for Seth in particular, who does the majority of the voices and at the time did the majority of work on the scripts and looked at every storyboard panel and every design, it was just that many episodes too many. So the idea was to get these shows up and running somehow. And for me, it turned out to be really a great opportunity. I produced a lot of shows. You know, we had Fox behind us at this point. Like Back before the show got canceled, they weren't really behind us so much. Trying to get anything was a bit of a struggle. But when it came back, it was a whole different sort of situation. And They allowed me to have a lot of autonomy, partially it's because I think the nature of a studio like that, I think if they had their druthers, they wouldn't do animation because for some reason they never really wanted to understand how it worked or wrap their minds around it. So it's something they never have a lot of control over. And if you come from a background of working live action, it becomes extremely frustrating to then be in charge of animated shows because it's not... A situation where you can have any control. You can read a script and give your notes, but if you can't draw it, your control is pretty marginalized and I think it was very frustrating for people. At the studio. Yeah, I think it's frustrating for executives anywhere with animation. But you know, it was advantageous for someone like me because you can take advantage of those situations and we had a lot of support from Fox, but They weren't really running the show. I mean, I had to report to people. But they put a great amount of trust in myself and in Seth to just sort of do it. And for me, it was a matter of building a mechanism to produce these shows the way Seth wanted. And every model is very different. It's loosely based on The Simpsons' model of how they produce their shows, but with some significant differences. And that Seth started out as an animator. So he wanted the writers and the animation staff. He wanted everyone under one roof, which is... Not done on The Simpsons, but he wanted everyone to sort of work in a communal atmosphere and staffing up shows like that. That was probably the hardest part for me. Is there, there was like the King of the Hill and The Simpsons. There are certain shows in Futurama like that are based on that live action animated model. They're not like wacky cartoons. Mm-hmm. So there's certain kind of artists that sort of understood that kind of storyboarding and directing. And it's very different from artists who would work on like Bugs Bunny or Powerpuff Girls or something. So there were a limited number of board artists and directors that sort of fit that mold, and so there was a lot of pillaging and I lost a lot of friends trying to staff those shows. Just because
1: um, people didn't get it, didn't. No, quite work it out. was a matter of steal, right. stealing people oh. from other
0: shows. Yeah, hmm. because there were a finite number of artists who worked in that style. Right. And it's really important because there are wonderful artists that work on Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon, but they come in and try to draw a Family Guy storyboard and the characters are bouncing around and if you look at a storyboard for a Family Guy or for The Simpsons, it looks very boring. The characters aren't moving all over the place and it's really modeled after how the actors say those lines. It's adult humor and it's based on a radio play and it's not really exploiting the medium of animation the way children's animation does. Right. I
1: mean, you're You're serving a whole different audience though.
0: Yeah, and it's just a different way of producing a show. And it can go horribly wrong if you don't understand that when you're setting up a system for a show like that. Mm -hmm. And I'd known Seth for a long time. We were very close and I knew what he wanted. And so it was important to not fuck that up and to build the mechanism for those shows that would give him the shows that he wanted while churning them out for a network that wanted them churned out.
1: He's obviously putting a lot of trust in you that has developed between the two of you since Mm -hmm. your days together at, I guess, Mm Hanna-Barbera. On top of everything else, it's a male-dominated industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to us about those challenges.
0: Yeah, well, I guess that's sort of multifaceted. The entertainment industry is male-dominated, and the television comedy world is male-dominated. Again, it's a little bit better now, but they were male-centric writing staffs and male executives for the most part. And I could write a book on the sort of nuanced, subtle, continuous efforts to... To marginalize me and my so-called power, I was doing a job, you know.
1: At a very high level, though, (laughs) and still are.
0: It's a high level, but it's still part of production. You know, these shows are productions. We're not executives. And I think there's a level of sort of misunderstanding sometimes of my role, I guess, and how it differs from other producer, like line producers on shows. And I had a lot of difficulty. And Seth had a lot of respect for me and, and did put a lot of trust in me. And that was the only reason why they even allowed me to do what I did. And for the first couple of years, maybe for the first five or six seasons, then um, it just stopped. I'd have to go to Fox and meet with uh, business people and the executives to justify my production plan for the season, which was a schedule and a budget and Seth always came with me because it was always a situation of sort of being berated by some dude about why Who the episode... Who has done your job oh, never, and doesn't done, really understand never it. Never done my job now. Why the episodes couldn't be delivered a year or, you know, just no comprehension. The Simpsons had been running for like 30 years. It wasn't like new, it wasn't new science. But it was always a matter of my, like, not being taken exactly seriously and having to defer to Seth, who would say, yes, she knows what she's talking about. This is how long it takes, whatever. And that just continued. There was a point at which they just sort of backed off from everything, and it was fine, and they didn't give us notes, and they stopped questioning the schedule, which was the same every fucking year. There wasn't going to be a point at which it was going to take us six fewer months to get the show on the air. Mm -hmm. And then Seth occasionally had some great idea. Like, he wanted to, do this Family Guy Star Wars crossover. So he'd come to me and say, I would really like to do this. Is there a way we can do this? So I'd come up with a plan and put together a parsed down budget as much as I could because it seemed like a good idea to me and it's something you wanted to do. But then I'd talk to the <laughs> studio about it and it would be like I was out of my fucking mind. Mm. Like, no, we're not spending another dollar to do some frivolous idea. And, you know, and there was that sort of lack of, well, maybe you this could be commodified and so i'd come up with ideas well maybe if you put it on dvd and you could get some money back for it whatever. and i ended up making them hundreds of millions of dollars and then they wanted more you know but it was always i was sort of constantly met with being made to feel like I was like a female child presenting some like ridiculous idea and not something that was like a potentially good business idea. Maybe you'll make a billion dollars on this and something George Lucas wanted to be involved in with us. There was always just like a sort of lack of imagination with mm. or something like that. Like I was always asking for something and not being a partner in creating something that I wasn't making any money off of it, I was doing it because Seth wanted to do it, and it wasn't like a money thing. But ended up making the studio a lot of money, and I have to imagine would have been different if I had been a dude.
1: Given that struggle, I mean, obviously, when you're hiring people, talent always wins out. You mm-hmm. have to hire the people who can do the job. That said, are you involved at all in trying to create any kinds of mentorship for women who are coming up through the ranks?
0: Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean... I don't hire the writers, but I encourage them to think outside the box of being just white men. And Family Guy has been through a couple different rounds of showrunners. The current yeah. showrunners have taken up that challenge and hired some women. And uh, showrunners and American Dad have done the same. In terms of what I have control over, yeah, absolutely. I just sort of make it a mandate for all the other aspects of the show that I do control hiring on. That in terms of talent, there's always the limitations of availability. And you know, for a production and people working in those areas, i did have mandates because there's no reason to not hire people of color and women at the same rate. They'd have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. My line producers on the shows work with Women in Animation, which is an organization that promotes jobs for women in animation. It's still a bit of a struggle. Certainly in my generation, I was raised, you know, my mom was a doctor. She was independent. But I was not raised to think I could be a television comedy writer or I could draw cartoons and make a living. I mean, I think maybe the millennial generation, the new Agent, they're maybe a little more relaxed about the making a living thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the idea that you could write jokes for a living is kind of a male, like you can do anything if you're a, a white male growing mm-hmm. up, right? You could do that could actually be a job. That was that would seem insane to me. I realized I wanted to originally be an animator, work in animation pretty young. And you know, I was going to art school and my mother was like, well, make sure they have courses in art therapy or you know something that didn't involve me actually drawing. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a legitimate concern when you're Not a dude, and you have to make a living. You have to have a certain level of outside confidence to think you could be a television comedy writer and support yourself, and not be concerned. But there are many more women coming up as artists now than there were of my generation.
1: Which is so bizarre, because (coughs) in the early days, so many of the animators were, in fact,
0: they were, yeah,
1: in the earliest days of animation.
0: Animation in terms of it being sort of a viable market has ebbed and flowed a lot over the years. And during those times, it was, you know, the glory days. Then it was like the desert for a couple generations. And right now, there's a ton of work and a lot of opportunities for anybody. But again, you have to have a sort of sense of confidence that you could possibly make a living doing that and not think, oh, I have to get a real job and have some sort of real training to do something. And, you know, that's been lacking in women for generations. And it's nice to see that the young generations have much more sense of confidence about that but you know having it really integrated with non-white people too mm-hmm. is a challenge it's the same thing you mm-hmm. know if you don't have like a trust fund or something you have to be able to really think you can get a job to do something right. and then to go and train to do something to be like a cartoonist you have to have some sort of fallback I guess mm-hmm. or else it's be yep. pretty terrifying. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media.
1: We'll fire up the Wayback Machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to work for Broadcast Arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were the ones who did Pee Wee's Playhouse. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I went to School of Visual Arts and studied various forms of art, including animation. And that was what I wanted to work in. But, you know, I had other jobs when I got out of college for a few years. And then eventually I got my first job in animation at Broadcast Arts. And it was the biggest commercial animation house in New York then. And it was really like the cool place to be. I did mostly commercials, but I was hired to be the assistant of one of the partners who wanted to expand and do television series. And we did a pilot for NBC called The Jackie Bison Show that you could maybe find out online because it's pretty insane. It's like a bison as a talk show host. And didn't go, didn't get picked up. Um, it's almost like, you know, like
1: Bo Jack Horseman or something like that. Yeah, you know, it doesn't is... seem
0: that crazy now. Yeah. I know. But then, <laughs> but back even then... back then, I was like, this is the stupidest <laughs> thing. And then I remember it was I think, Brandon Tartikoff. Hmm. and he was there, and we were pitching this stupid idea to him in the Office of Broadcast Arts. And I just remember thinking, oh, God. And then he was like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. So I did this pilot, and this was terrible. And they did the post-production out in L.A. for some reason, so I came out here for maybe only the second time. I'd been in L.A. And then I sort of realized that I would maybe have to move there if I wanted to do anything outside of commercials Mm -hmm. and animation. So
1: You made the jump.
0: I did, and I, I didn't know anybody, and it was a different time. It was cheap to live here, and I temped through a temp agency for about a year and a half before I got a job in Which was? animation. Which I remember I was at a a temp job at a bank and I would read the trades and Paramount was setting up an animation division. And that's when that sort of started to happen where studios were starting to want to do animated movies. So they had a studio in Glendale called Hyperion Animation they were just setting up. So I had had experience in animation in New York and there were very few people who had any experience working in animation production. So my first job outside of this two years of temping was really good. It was on a movie called Bay Bay's kids it's sort of like a cult hit now I me mean, it seems a little offensive now but it was it was fun it was kind of a flop I guess but I worked there for a couple of years and then when that was done I, I don't know I worked at so many different studios because you
1: did teenage mutant ninja. i did
0: yeah i went to work at a studio called fred wolf films and it was sort of the dying days of the ninja turtles and i produced like the last few seasons of that mm-hmm. and then a bunch of other shows one called dino babies which mm-hmm. is what you think it was and then i did a bunch of like these straight to video bible story things and during the first season of Cosmos, some of the producers wanted me to veer more towards like realistic style animation, and I wanted it to be way more abstract. And I couldn't find a way to describe what I was afraid of. Because we couldn't make it like Disney. We had a small budget and not a lot of time. So I wanted to stylize it to make it seem adult and not wonky. And then I kept thinking back to those fucking Bible videos. And it was that the animated Jesus that looked so wonky. And I said, Seth, I did these videos. And it's like the animated Jesus. That's what it's going to look like. If I make him look realistic and walking around like a man, it's going to look like those videos. And so he would use that reference all the time whenever one of the producers would be like, oh, I think it should move a little more realistically. You know, he should look a little more human and he'd be like, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Move the decimal point to the right and yeah. you can afford to do it.
0: Not even. I mean, it's hard to make anything look adult animation-wise if you're going to naturalize it. It's just fucking impossible. But that's the kind of stuff I did.
1: Talk about how you wound up at Hanna-Barbera <laughs> and meeting Seth.
0: I think I had left Fred Wolf for some reason, and a friend of mine was working in Hanna-Barbera, and they were looking for someone to produce show Johnny Bravo. And they were part of Cartoon Network at that point, and they were part of Turner mm-hmm. Television, and they had a program called, I think it was What a Cartoon or something like that, where they were producing shorts for, mm-hmm. like, anybody could submit an idea with, like, nobody's. It was spearheaded by a guy named Fred Seibert, who worked there at the time. And it was really brilliant. And through that program, Seth came, he was, you know, 22 or something, and he had moved to LA because he had a short, and it launched careers like Genndy Tartakovsky, who's like a big director at Sony, and he did Dexter's Laboratory, and then there was Powerpuff Girls, and it really brought an enormous amount of talent in. But Johnny Bravo was the show that Seth was assigned to. They didn't do his short, but they put him on the show, and he was a storyboard artist and a writer. And we became really, really good friends, there was a point maybe two years in when that show was finishing and then Warner Brothers came in and took over, the like the big central casting corporate takeover of Hanna-Barbera and the Cartoon Network. It was sort of like, you know, Hanna-Barbera was this amazing place to work because it was where television animation was born
1: in, mean, that in that same to, location. You know, the Flintstones and mm-hmm. the Jetsons and all the stuff that people of my generation grew up with.
0: Right, on, and, and, and mine. Hannah and Barbaric basically created the idea of TV animation, and they did it there. I was at this historic studio over on Kowanga, and it was just really fun. And now stealing myself for the Disney takeover, I think about that. It was one day, it was just it was just over. Like, <laughs> Warner Brothers had just come in and... The good times were over, but I feel really lucky to have worked there for the last two years of that studio when we were sort of figuring out, like, we didn't know what was really happening. And so a bunch of the artists on my show were, like, coming up with ideas to pitch to other studios because they didn't have jobs. So Seth was working on this short for what became Family Guy. Um, And all these guys were doing it in their offices at Hanna-Barbera. One of the other writers and artists on our show is Butch Hartman, who I think developed and then pitched... The Fairly Odd Parents, which became a big show over at Nickelodeon, but mm-hmm. while we were at Hanna-Barbera, I got a job then over at Sony and. When Family Guy eventually got picked up by Fox, my boss at Sony wouldn't let me leave to mm-hmm. go work on it. And it was mm-hmm. one of those things where mm-hmm. I didn't have a contract I could have, but he just mind-fucked me and he was like, this is your show, that's not your sh-, you know. So I stayed at Sony and I produced a show called Dilbert, it was based mm-hmm. on the comic strip mm-hmm. for two seasons, and then that was canceled, that was on UPN. And then they put me on a movie that Adam Sandler was doing called Eight Crazy Nights, and I made movie at Sony so I was producing that and it was not going well it was nothing to do with Adam Sandler and those guys were great it was my producer you know the same person that wouldn't let me leave to go do Family Guy or butting heads and Seth called and said can you come over now because he knew I didn't have a contract on this movie and so I decided to leave and it was just a it was a big fuck fest of people like were freaking out at, at Sony and it was an awful time You know, and I kept questioning myself. Imagine if I had stayed on that movie, not gone to Family Guy. But so I left, and we did one season, and then it was canceled. But it was still, it was wonderful experience. And then it ended up coming back a couple years later. So
1: and not only came back, but again it's still going.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and the
1: 35 show order on top of everything else.
0: Yeah, it was super exciting at that point. It was really exciting because these fans that no one really knew existed kind of came out of the woodwork, leading up to when we were going to reprise. They do these live events where the actors would do like a live table read. and They were like the Beatles. It was insane. People were so crazy about the idea that family was coming back. It was really fun. And then, then we just got beaten down by all the episodes and all the things they made us
1: do. Why did you want to become an animator? And what made you think that you could really do it?
0: My grandfather was from Germany and he was sort of obsessed with animation and he was an engineer and he had like eight millimeter reels of Walt Disney films Mm -hmm. and he was sort of obsessed with it. And at some point I I just remember I was maybe eight or nine and having a conversation with him about it and he was like, oh, you're going to be an artist. And I was like, but I want to like the idea of, I was trying to explain to him the idea of conceiving of something, anything and not being able to see it was very frustrating for me. I don't really know why that was frustrating to me. But so the idea of being able to conceive of something like, you know, a dog and a cat in a banana field, whatever, and then being able to draw it and actually put it in motion and be able to see it. It was very compelling for me. And then I became just obsessed with that idea of figuring out how to do it. And my grandfather and I made like a flip book or something. And I was obsessed with watching cartoons too. I went to very small school. So I grew up in Philadelphia and I went to a small private high school where I was considered like, got the art award and thought I was like great. And then I went to art school and I very quickly figured out like, There were people that seemed to be painting like Rembrandt. It was a rude awakening. Like, I sucked compared to most of the people at school. And I did my classes, and I learned a lot. I was very competitive growing up. I did a lot of things well. And then I got to New York, and I was a little bit younger than my classmates. And I was like, fuck, there are people, like, painting. Mm -hmm. So... I kind of quickly decided that it might be easier for me to sort of facilitate projects rather than to actually do them. And I could draw and I can animate, but I would not have been successful had I gone that route. I really did not have a lot of talent.
1: <laughs> but you have talent as a producer.
0: Yeah, I do. And it is a kind of talent. Kind of? Well, you'd be surprised, but people don't.
1: Hopefully most of our listeners know I hope so. just how hard producing is. It's pulling together a whole project. It's making a project happen. In television in particular, I mean, Mm -hmm. people talk about film being a director's medium, Mm -hmm. but television is definitely the producer's medium.
0: Yeah, and I think that the shows I produce are on an arcane model. The streaming model, they don't do like 22 episodes of television, but we still do that, and like The Simpsons still does that. And it's really a metric ton of work, and animation takes a
1: really long time.
0: I mean, it's like a year and a half you know, it's it's an exhaustive amount of work. Everything's hand drawn. It's like it's not a computer spitting anything out.
1: Now the big question: growing up as a kid, Disney or Warner Brothers?
0: I'd not say Hanna Barbera. They were my favorite shows, but those were really my Saturday mornings. I loved the Disney movies. You know, those were sort of special events. But hanna Barbera was really, like, those series that they would churn out, yeah. all of them. I mean, Flintstones was my far away, my favorite show ever. Mm-hmm. I think it still is.
1: So growing up, you were talking uh, about how uh, Cosmos was an event in your household. Mm-hmm. Just how mind-blowing is it now to actually be producing Cosmos?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I still will hold the Carl Sagan in so much reverence. And I feel like it's something so different. It's not that show, it's sort of a whole new creation. And after we produced the first season and it became so popular and people loved it so much, it was amazing because Everything is so difficult, and the amount of work you put into animation, it takes so long, and it's such hard work. And to see that kind of reaction was really wonderful, and to see, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson basically became, like, a superstar because of that show, and it was amazing. And to see people actually wanted to see a science show. Millions and millions of people, they broadcast it simultaneously all over the world. And they were desperate for a science show, I guess. And if Anne and Seth hadn't sort of pushed it and said, we just want to do this, just let us do it. Because I make Mm -hmm. Family Guy, so let me do this. You know, no one would have thought of doing something like that, like putting a science show on Fox on Sunday night.
1: Speaking of superstars, Seth. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a guy who... Aside from starting off in animation and now running these shows for Fox, mm-hmm. this guy who sings at Carnegie Hall and the Royal mm-hmm. Albert Hall and has released five albums and mm-hmm. has hosted the Academy Awards and mm-hmm. is putting the Orville and, and other great television on the air. Mm-hmm. And he's picked you.
0: Well, let's just say he picked me long before any of that happened.
1: But he was it still wasn't the that. guy.
0: To me, he was, you know, maybe a couple weeks after knowing him when I realized that he was different, that he was special. And he's someone that, like, you know, Family Guys never won, you know, a show Emmy, and it never will. And I think there was a great amount of resentment because he was touted as like the youngest showrunner ever or the million dollar deal, whatever. I mean, maybe people realize this now, but he's one of those few people that deserves it. He's so fucking talented. I've never seen that in anybody else. I mean, I watched him like teach himself how to play the piano. He's never afraid make a fool of himself which I think is a huge asset because I'm always afraid of making a fool of myself but he's never had like that one toe in the water thing we did a fundraising event that I produced and he's like I think I'm gonna tap dance and I'm like what that's so how he took tap dancing last like who would do that like that takes balls as a grown man to get up there he's the most talented voiceover actor I've ever seen in my life and it's just unbelievable what he can do you know I, I think it's been sort of double-edged sword in terms of the shows aren't winning awards We've done 18 seasons and every other fucking animated show is won an emmy <laughs>
1: is it because he and you are so dedicated to pushing the envelope in terms mm. of what you can get away with
0: he's the one pushing envelope in terms of what you can get away with i think where i push the envelope is in quality, like I'm absolutely unrelenting. I will never go into anything if I'm not sure I can be 100% successful in it, which is one of the reasons why I originally said no to working on Cosmos. I didn't really get it and understand it, but if I do it, it's going to be the best it can be. Fortunately, Seth and I were on the same page, and I didn't have to work with any confines. I was building something from scratch. And I know I've worked in a lot of animation studios, and you have to work within their own systems of how they think things should be done. And to me, it's never right unless it's <laughs> how I want to do it. So I'd I have a really hard time ever going to work within someone else's system again.
1: So when you think back to why <laughs> you wanted to do this mm-hmm. as a kid and where you are now, How's that turned out? (laughs) I mean, are you happy?
0: Yeah, I can't complain. It's really, it's worked out well, yes. And for all my griping and complaining about some of the the systems of oppression will always be there. I mean, I was given an amazing opportunity to do exactly what I wanted, which was to create a system exactly how I wanted it, to be or how I felt it needed to be and to be able to hire everybody it just you don't have to ever work with an asshole like you don't ever have to hire someone everyone is great at the studio otherwise they don't work there and it's a wonderful place to be and I work with amazing people and I didn't get into animation as like just a way to get into entertainment I don't ever want to work in any other I don't want to work on live action television I'm not interested in any of that it's just this medium that I love and I love working with artists and seeing the the results of all that hard work in the process
1: thank you for taking us inside all of that
0: oh, sure thank you
1: our guest today Cara Vallo, executive producer of Family Guy and so many other great shows
0: thank, thank you. you Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co. Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society this episode was hosted by Scott Talal with guest Cara Vallo. Produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing entertainment you love. Kurtco Media media for your mind.